you will, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. In my Bible, I actually had to turn the page, so we start a new chapter. While you're finding that, let me remind you that this week is our week of prayer for our church on mission. During the year, we have a week of prayer for international missions. We have a week of prayer for North American missions. This is the week in which you're invited to be praying for our church. Uh, in your bulletin, you should have gotten a little flyer. It has a bunch of ministries listed out. Put that someplace prominent in uh, your life where you can see that. Be reminded to pray for those ministries and the people involved in it uh, in that regard. Uh, also, if you're on our prayer list, connect list, get the announcements over the email list, uh, every day, right around 11.45, I think it is, you'll be getting a reminder to pray for our church. So uh, just commit yourself to do that for us, please, uh, to pray for our church. Tonight, we begin the week of prayer with a special uh, overview of our missions um, uh, that we're doing here in our church. Pray for our church during the week, and then next Sunday night, we have our annual stewardship banquet. Uh, the most important thing you need to know is that there's free food, plenty of it. Just show up and, and let's have a good time. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, we'll also be honoring and, and, and praising God for uh, all the people who uh, are moved to the Spirit to volunteer in the work and ministry of our church. So uh, a nice week of prayer. Pray for our church. Be involved tonight and then next Sunday night with the stewardship banquet. Uh, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 7 uh, this morning. Uh, but before we do that, I want to sort of connect this up to everything that we have been doing so far. Um, sometimes we get the idea that the Bible thinks the way we do. It just goes here and there and, you know, it's just sort of scattered. No, there, there's a progression. There's, a, there's a, a, a flow of the thought of the Scriptures, and I, I want you uh, uh, to see that uh, this morning. Uh, you remember that, that Paul started out saying, let's bless God for the way that he has blessed us and talked about what God had done in saving us, electing us, adopting us, sending Christ to die for us, redeem us, forgive us of our sins, the Holy Spirit coming to seal us and guarantee us in our salvation. And then Paul said, and so I'm praying for you that you will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you'll know what is your hope and what is uh, uh, your inheritance and what is the power that God has given to you. And then he ends that... and. Let me just point that out to you at the um, end of uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, Paul is talking about the great might and the power of God. And he says that he, God the Father, worked in Christ the Son when he raised him, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. And you remember we spent some time thinking about what that means for us and, and why that's such an important thing to understand and to remember, that God raised Christ from the dead, brought him up into heaven itself. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father where he has all rule, power, and authority. Because as we begin reading chapter 3, uh, well, we'll read chapter 3, but chapter 2, then what we're looking at uh, is what that means for us right now. And to point that out, let me skip you down to verse 4. This is chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even as, well, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, then verse 6, and raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. 
In other words, what Paul says the Father did for the Son, the Father is doing for us in the Son. In other words, as Christ was raised, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand, Paul says, now we are raised in Christ, we ascend into heaven in Christ, and we are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ. All of Christianity rises and falls on that truth. All of it rises and falls on that truth. Without the fact that God is working in us to exalt and glorify himself, he is working to bring us in Christ into his own right hand. If you don't have that, all you have is an ethical system. All you have is a philosophy. All you have are some nice Bible stories. But because God is working to bring us into his own presence in Christ, that's the difference. This this, this is so different than, than what anybody else believes. I mean, take something like a simple thing about heaven. Most of your friends believe in heaven, even if they're not Christians. They, they believe in heaven. See, what, what, what happens when your loved one dies? Well, they go to heaven. What do they do there? Well, they're just sort of hanging out, playing part cheesy, waiting for me to get there. You know, when we get there, we're going to have a great time. Oh, we're going we're gonna, to you know, play games together and sports and, and you know, have a picnic or something. But most people think, how did you get to heaven? Well, I called Uber. (laughs) I called some mechanism in the world to get me there. I earned my way there. I was good enough. I was basically a good person. All of us go to heaven. All dogs go to heaven. Certainly we do too. (laughs) This is the way the world thinks. How do you get to heaven? You just go there. You just get there. What do we know about heaven? You don't get there without Jesus Christ. You don't get into the presence of God apart from the Son. You simply do not arrive at heaven unless the Father puts you in the Son, in Christ. And as the Father raised the Son and brought him into heaven and seated him at the right hand, so too now the Father raises us up with Christ. And he ascends, brings us up with Christ, seats us with Christ. See, that's what we believe, and that's how crucial this is. That's how vitally important this is. So as we're beginning to look then at chapter 2, well, first let me tell you this. You weren't going anywhere, were you? (laughs) I I find this, like, really fascinating. In in my Bible, um, verses 1 through 7 is at least two sentences. In the Greek, it's all one sentence. And the great thing about the Greek is it has little ways to signal what words do in the sentence, whether they're the object or the subject or the main verb or, or a, um, a, a subordinate clause, you know, that, that kind of thing. You can figure that out in English, but you have to know, in, well, you have to know how to diagram. Does anybody diagram sentences anymore? Does that mean anything to you, God? Ah, one. Ah, oh, but you're homeschooled, aren't you? No, no, oh, Okay. <laughs> She's not. She's not. She's, it's your public education dollars, actually. <laughs> you know. uh, but yeah, if you know how to diagram sentences, it's, it's, it's the thing where you put this big line across and then you put the main subject and put little slash and then you put the main verb. And that's the point of the sentence. Everything else is, is, is elucidation, illumination, and, and just adding in to the depth of the meaning. If you were to diagram this sentence in Greek, and I know you wanted to do that, But if you were, what you would find is the main subject is God and the main verb is raised us up with Christ. 
That's, that's it. The rest of it is filling in. For instance, the first three verses just tell us, well, here's what God had to work with. He didn't have much to work with. Now, it's not like God looked down and he says, wow, I've got some really good materials here. I, I bet I could paint a really nice picture. I mean, he had some dead stuff going on. I, uh, <laughs> I, I get pretzels in a little, little plastic pouch. All right. The reason I do that is because the diet company that shall remain nameless, because after all, I don't want to give uh, Marie Osmond a... Um... <laughs> but anyway, this, this, little, this little pretzel comes to me in a little, little, little pouch, and uh, you don't lose any weight with it, but it makes you feel like you're doing something. But anyway, so I, I get this pretzel. It's supposed to be frozen. It comes to me frozen. You keep it frozen. So I always keep my pretzels frozen, and when you pull them out, microwave them, they're great. I mean, they really are great. So uh, the other day, um, uh, Randy was saying, well, I, ne- I need something to eat. I said, here, have my pretzel. He says, no, I don't want to take your pretzel. I said, sure, I've got an extra one. And I did. It was in the refrigerator, not the freezer, but in the refrigerator. And it had been there about two to three weeks. I said, you, you have my fresh pretzel, and I'll just take this one that's been in the fr- refrigerator. Because after all, it's been refrigerated, Right. Yeah, most of you look at me. You know where this is going. So I give him the pretzel. He, he said, oh, really great pretzels. I open my pretzel, and I have this green slush. It's not like I had a pretzel with mold on it. What I had was mold in the shape of a pretzel. When I, when I turned the bag over, it, I, I just sort of poured out my pretzel. But you know when you're on a diet, you eat it anyway, so... <laughs> Well, not really. Here's the thing. God didn't even have a molded pretzel to deal with. He had nothing because we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. So that's what we're reading about. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning is what, or start to look at this morning. And, you know, what is it that God had to deal with in us? And the answer is nothing at all. And that's what we're reading. But... God in his mercy raised us in Christ. That's what we're reading about, and uh, let's, let's start in on that. This is uh, chapter 2, verse 1, book of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, how we thank you for the privilege of service and ministry. Uh, We just glorify your name for the events of this past Friday night where at night to shine, you gave us the opportunity to give and to serve those who would never give back to us in return. You allowed us to love some people for whom, um, uh, Father, it might have been difficult, but your Holy Spirit just opened our hearts. Father, I thank you for all those who gave of their time and their effort and their energy. And what a privilege it is 
to just share the name of Jesus in a tangible way. Father, as we glorify you, we thank you. We ask that such service in our lives would be more than an occasional event, but would be a constant way of life. Father, that we would look at those around us and in ways that the world counts, small or large, Father, that we would be willing to be used by your Holy Spirit to share your love in Christ with others. Father, teach us the humility that comes with service. Teach us, Father, to um, just offer and open ourselves to all that you would do in us, that you would be glorified in our lives. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name. You know, there's a lot of good-looking people in the world. For example, thank you. It'll be a little something for you and for you. (laughs) But there's a beauty in what so many people do. I I was thinking about uh, uh, the Night to Shine event and how many people volunteered, just gave their time for the sake of, of ministering to a community. Uh, with special needs. And uh, there were literally hundreds of volunteers, about half of them, most of them from, uh, from our church. And, uh, very pleased on that. But with all the volunteers, there's a statistical probability. It is more than likely that some of those volunteers were not believers in Christ, and yet they still hugged people and helped people and served people. I mean, it, when you think about it, it's, it's really humanity at its very best. It's just beautiful. Which is why it is hard to read Paul when he says, you were dead. I mean, that, that just seems like a very harsh, blunt, hitch over the head with a two-by-four kind of thing to say. You were dead. Because we look at, around and we see so many people who seem really, really alive. I mean, maybe you feel really, really alive in the idea that, well, I never felt like I was dead per se, but Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You say it's possible to look alive and to live a dead man's life. I remind you of King David. King David had all the power you could possibly want. Man after God's own heart, and God had blessed him, and the borders of the kingdom had been expanded, and the, and the influence of the kingdom had been enlarged. And so uh, with King David, there was all the power that you could possibly want. This is a guy who's hitting on all cylinders. Everything is going, like, really, really well. You'd look at him and say, that's a guy who is really alive And yet the day came when he looked across the garden wall and there he saw Bathsheba and he wanted her and his desire for her just consumed him. He brought her into the palace and she became pregnant by him. He thought, well, I'm king, I can get away with this and said, I've got this figured out. I'll get Bathsheba's husband, his name was Uriah. I'll, I'll get her husband, I'll bring him home from the army and have him spend a week or so here, uh, home leave, you know. And uh, then uh, when it turns out everybody knows she's pregnant, they say, well, of course Uriah was here. So he brought Uriah home, and Uriah said, King David, I appreciate all this, but I'm not going 
to, to have the comforts of home. I'm going to live in the tents as my soldiers are out in the field. What they are suffering now, I'm going to continue to suffer because far be it from me to enjoy the pleasures of home while my soldiers are sacrificing in the field. And so Uriah didn't go home to Bathsheba. David sort of figured out this might be a bad thing, so he said, well, nobody will know as long as they think Uriah's the father. So Uriah's the only one who'll know, and he had Uriah murdered. He told the generals, put Uriah at the front of, the, of a squad and have them go on a suicide mission, and just about halfway there, tell the squad to go home, but don't tell Uriah, and, and he'll just sort of keep going, and he'll accidentally be, be murdered. He'll be killed on the field of battle, and, and when Bathsheba is pregnant, nobody will know the difference. Say, well, you know, Uriah came home for a couple of weeks. Um, must, be, must be his baby. And he thought he got away with it until Nathan the prophet came to to David, and he said, David, King David, I want to tell you a story. It's about a rich man, a rich man who had everything he could possibly want. But one day he saw something that a poor man had, and he took it from the poor man just because he wanted it. Didn't need it, already had plenty of, it, of his own, but he just wanted that. King David said, well, hum. That's a Hebrew word. Hum, he said. And uh, he said, tell me who that man is. Nathan said, King David, thou art the man. It's you. And instantly King David knew that his wickedness and his sin was known, especially known to God. And he was a man who was living the life as a dead man. Well, out of that experience, he wrote Psalm 51 in which he cried out for a clean heart, oh God, you know, create within me a clean heart, confessing his sins and the depth and the magnitude of his sins, realizing that as long as he followed his own desires, he was living apart from God, he was living a dead man's life. You see, it's possible to look alive, but you're dead within. King Solomon had all the wisdom in the world. He had all the wisdom you could, you, you could want. God had given him that wisdom. And yet he, he had all the wisdom, and as a result, he got all the wealth. And oh, by the way, he had all the women he wanted. Those are three W's and makes a three-point sermon as soon as I figure out what the points are. But he had all the wealth, and he had all the wisdom, and he had all the women. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes that starts out with emptiness, vanity of vanities. There's just nothing but emptiness around me. All is vanity. By the way, the book of Ecclesiastes is basically the daily journal of a man suffering from depression who looks around and says, you know, there's no point in any of this. There's no, there's no joy in any of this. To the outside world, he looked like he had life, but he was dead on the inside. Let me tell you this, this just real quick, jot this down. Jesus Christ is the answer to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've ever read that book and tried to figure out what is going on here, just put the name Jesus Christ at the top of every page of the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll know what the answer to that book is. But Solomon was a man who had wealth and wisdom, and yet he was still a dead man. Maybe religion would make you come alive. Well, that would be Saul before his conversion. He was a religious man. He, he was keeping the law. He was doing everything he, he was supposed to do. He loved God. He loved God so much 
that he wanted to get rid of the Christians because they were distorting the truth of the Torah, of the scriptures. They were doing away with the law. They were even talking about Gentiles being allowed into this family of God thing. And so they had to be stopped. And and Saul was on his way to put an end to it because he was alive in his religion, but he was dead spiritually. And Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and stopped and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at that moment, Saul realized he was a dead man on the inside. And Christ brought him back to life. See, we are dead without Jesus Christ. It seems harsh, but we are dead without Jesus Christ. You know, most people think the problem with with, uh, humanity is that we're in the doghouse with God. Now, uh, you guys who are married, I don't have to explain to you what the doghouse is. Uh, you pretty much know. And, and ladies, I don't have to explain it to you either because you built it. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the doghouse is where you go and you've slipped up a little bit. You've made a pretty bad mistake. And now you're not allowed in the big house, so you go and you sleep in the doghouse for a little while and hope that things get better. Well, this is the view most people have is if there's anything wrong in your life, you're just in the doghouse. No, things will get better. You, you have a chance to get better. In fact, the Muslim will come to you and say, if you're in the doghouse, here's what you need to do. You need to observe the five pillars of Islam. And if you're really, really good, then, the, then, then God might invite you. Not guaranteed, but he might invite you back into the big house. So while you're in the doghouse, do all your prayers and almsgiving and all those kinds of things. The Hindu will come to you and say, well, you're in the doghouse. But all you need to do is spin a few prayer wheels, ring a few bells, and maybe next time you'll get a better doghouse. The Buddhist comes to you and says, well, you're in the doghouse, that's fine. All you need to do is to meditate so, so hard, and if you're successful at it after you've meditated long enough, you'll forget you're in the doghouse. And the atheist comes to you and says, well, you're in the doghouse. But all you need to do is put up some curtains, get some Wi-Fi connection into the doghouse, and make the best of it. Folks, we're not in the doghouse. We're in the morgue. We're not just a little bit messed up. We are dead. We're not just, you know, off beam a little bit, but we are absolutely dead apart from Jesus Christ. You see, when you're dead in your sins, you're dead to the love of God. You're, you're dead to what God would, would, would do in your life. I, I bring you real quickly the story of the young man. He was a rich man, and he came to Jesus one time. And he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to get into heaven? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What, what do I have to do to be acceptable to God? What do I have to do to go to heaven? And this time Jesus said, well, young man, here, here's the deal. You need to keep the commandments. You know, don't cheat, don't steal, don't lie, don't, you know, don't commit adultery, all those kinds. Of, just do those things. That's, that's what the law says. And the young man said, I'm glad to hear that, Jesus, because I have kept all these things from my youth up. And in Mark chapter 10, the scripture says this, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Oh, you said, well, he loved everybody. But this was, he loved this guy. He looked at this guy and said, he's, he's, on the, he's, he's so close to the kingdom. He wants to do everything right. He, he, he's doing it as best he can. Scripture says, and Jesus loved him. And so he said, there's just one thing you're lacking. What you need to do is go and take all that you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And when you've gotten rid of your riches, you can come follow me. 
Get rid of your riches the way I asked the fishermen to get rid of their nets and their boats. Get rid of your riches the way I asked the tax collector to get rid of his tables. Get rid of your riches and then follow me because do you understand what a good, tight time we could have together, walking together. You follow me. Jesus loved this man. The scripture records that the young man went away sad and despondent, depressed and downtrodden. Folks, if ever love could have broken through, but he was dead in his sin. And so he was dead to the love of God for him. I give you by contrast Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was also a very wealthy man. He was a very rich man, but one day it dawned on him, I need to see Jesus. So he climbed up in a sycamore tree, and uh, while he was waiting for Jesus came along, he wrote a, a, a song. And, and Jesus is, is, is coming by, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, let's, let's get together. I want to go to your house. Let's have dinner together. And when they got there, Zacchaeus just realized the love of God in Christ for his life. And he said, Jesus, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to start giving my money back. If I defrauded anybody, I'll give them double. If I, if I cheated anybody, I'll give them quadruple. Zacchaeus came up with a formula that by the end of it, he was left with nothing. All because he had experienced the love of God. Now, the difference between Zacchaeus and this young man was they were both dead, but Zacchaeus knew it. They were both dead, and Zacchaeus knew it and knew that he needed Jesus. And that changed his life. Oh, when you're dead in your sins, you're dead to the love of God. You remember how Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he cried out. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets, and you kill everybody who whom God sends to you. How many times I would have gathered you together the way a, a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How many times I would have hugged you and embraced you and loved on you. And you would not. You wouldn't let me. You wouldn't let me. See, that's what sin does to you. It makes you dead to the love of God. When you're dead in your sin, you're dead to the truth of God. Uh, there was a group of people in the time of Jesus who were, uh, they, they were like really into the truth of God. They were called Pharisees. And uh, they studied the scriptures and they applied the scriptures to their lives. And they had this nutty idea that God was a God everywhere and God was a God of all people and that God was a God who spoke through his word and that the truth of God's word should apply to every person at all times and every places. That's, that's the essence of the Pharisees. And they studied that Torah, and they memorized that Torah, and they taught the Torah, they taught the, the, the law of God. They had, they had all this truth together in their hands. And when they came and talked to Jesus, Jesus would say things to them like, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Why? Because they were dead to the truth of God. Not factual truth, but the living truth of God. They were dead to that truth. I was listening to, a, um, uh, very quickly, a, um, uh, an audio uh, presentation by B uh, Bertrand Russell. Um, and it's good that it's audio. He's dead now. He was the, but he was the premier philosopher of England uh, back in the last century. Right? Um, atheist, secularist, um, and the, the title of this lecture that he was giving was, Why I Am Not a Christian. And it followed the, the lines that you think. First, he talked about why he couldn't believe in God and why he couldn't believe the Bible and, you know, things like that. But then he got to Jesus and said, and I want to tell you why Jesus was not the greatest and most noble man who ever walked the face of the earth. So he said a lot of nice things. But Bertrand Russell said this. He said, when Jesus encountered his enemies, he called them hypocrites. 
He said that there was a place reserved for them in the outer darkness with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He said, what kind of guy does that? And then Russell said this. He said, I much prefer Socrates and Buddha. Socrates was an ancient Greek philosopher who was executed by the city of Athens because he was teaching contrary to their, their thought process. But as Socrates died, he was saying things like, well, that's okay. You know, I'm fine. It's all cool. You know, hey, you got some more hemlock? And, you know, just that. He died very quietly, didn't say a thing about his enemies. Bertrand Russell thought that was great. Let me tell you why Socrates died that way. He didn't care about his enemies. He didn't care about them. When you love somebody, you tell them the truth, even when the truth hurts. When you love somebody, you tell them the truth of who they are, even though it might not be pretty. See, there's a lot of people who do a lot of things, and I don't, I don't stop them, and I don't, uh, you know, get in their face and talk to them, but I want you to know I did with my boys. I did with some of your kids too, but I've told them not to tell you. <laughs> no, that's not true. But when you love somebody, you tell them what's truth. And when Jesus said, you hypocrites, it was the kindest, most loving thing he could say. Why? Because they were hypocrites. But when you're in your sin and your self-possessed life, you look like you're alive, but you're dead to the truth of God. You're dead to the power of God. You're dead to the, to, to the, um, uh, to the righteousness of God. Uh, just, just very quickly, as time eludes us, Paul says, you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins. The Greek is much better here. The, the Greek says, and you being dead in your sins and trespasses. It doesn't say sins and trespasses in general. In your sins, your trespasses, what you have done, what you have thought, the, the life that you are leading, you were dead. Apart from Christ. That's what God had to work with. A bag of moldy pretzel. You know, we can't leave it there, folks. But God, <laughs> being rich in mercy, raised us up with Christ. When you know you were dead, you're going to worship him and you're going to adore him. You're just going to follow him. When you realize that, that he didn't take us out of the doghouse, he brought us out of the morgue. You're just going to serve him. And so uh, th this coming week, I, I just want to invite you. Uh, every so often, uh, Debbie reminded me that uh, if, if you're on the email list, you're going to be getting a reminder every day at about 11.45, I think it is, um, uh, to pray for some aspect of the church. Let that also be a little reminder to just pause and say, God, am I living like a dead person? Have I lived this morning like a dead person? Or have I been alive in Christ? And how can I live for Christ for the rest of the day? Just do that every day. When you get that reminder, okay? How, am I living like a dead person? Or am I living a life in Christ? And how can I continue to live in Christ the rest of the day? Because apart from that, if you, know, you leave Jesus out, here's the deal. We're dead. We are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. 
Let's bow together for prayer. Father, thank you for loving us so much that even while we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Father, thank you for loving us so much that even when we were running as fast as we could away from you, you reached out and stopped us and brought us unto yourself. We just thank and praise you for that. But Lord, there's somebody in this room this morning for whom that's not yet a reality. And this morning you've awakened in their hearts a knowledge that they're living a dead person's life. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit to be poured out, that the Holy Spirit would bring a change of heart and a change of mind and will, and that the Holy Spirit would lead that life that is dead into life in Jesus Christ.